What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I'm Greg Olson, and this is TE1, the podcast where we explore the evolution of the tight end position through conversations with some of the best players of all time. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to TE1. I'm your host, Greg Olson, and today I'm going to be talking to none other than Shannon Sharp. So as this journey continues to play out, another name that from the very beginning we knew needed to be a part of this story was Hall of Fame tight end Shannon Sharp. So unlike the first two episodes with Mike Dicka and Ozzie Newsom, Shannon did not share that pedigree coming out of college. He went to a smaller level college, not highly sought after, not a guy that caught the attention of a lot of scouts, found himself to be the 192nd pick in the seventh round by the Denver Broncos. They weren't sure, was he big enough to play tight end? Was he more of an H-back wide receiver? And Shannon goes on to break at the time, Ozzie Newsom, who held the record for the most career receiving yards by a tight end. When Shannon retired, he held that with 10,060 yards on 815 catches. I mean, Shannon was the first guy that put up these numbers that just blew people away. When Shannon retired in 2003, he was the epitome. He was the benchmark standard for what the tight end position was and found himself as, you know, 1990s all-decade team. And in 2011, the ultimate honor for all NFL players is he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. During my conversation with Shannon, we went all the way back to the beginning, you know, growing up on his grandparents' farm in Georgia, talking about what it was like, him and his brother and his sister, you know, work in the fields, work in the farm for his grandparents, to hear how much he respected and loved and cared for his brother Sterling, who went on to have an unbelievable, albeit short NFL career due to a serious neck injury, and just hear the impact that Sterling had on him as an early child, keeping him on path, keeping him guided, making him go to college, making him continue to live out his journey. And then again, as, as all these other guys, the, the players that they've come in contact with, the coaches they've come in contact with, I mean, legendary quarterback John Elway and, and you know Shannon talking about from the very beginning, he's not sure why to this day, but John Elway just took a liking to him. He loved throwing him the ball. He loved him as a person. They just formed this really unique bond. Talking about his transition when he left Denver before he came back for the second go-round and, and Ozzie Newsom bringing him in. And then while he's a member of the Ravens, breaking Ozzie Newsom's receiving record. It was just so cool to hear him open up and share these really intimate and personal stories. And little did we know upon scheduling to have this conversation and do an interview with Shannon that by the time that interview came to be, our country was in the midst of social and civil unrest and, and social protesting like we haven't seen in a long time. And Shannon's voice in that arena carries a lot of credibility. It carries a lot of weight. And he was a voice that we thought needed to be heard. And sometimes you don't know why things play out the way they do. And you don't know why things time up the way they do. But I believe that the timing of Shannon's interview for this series came at the perfect time. And we dove into it. And here is my conversation with Shannon Sharp. Well, Shannon, first off, having guys like yourself of your caliber 
of your resume, agree to be a part of this. Just thank you because it means a lot to all of us. Well, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on. I mean, sometimes I I think people talk about the guys of the past and the guys of the present and they forget the guys in between. So I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to come on. Well, you don't have to worry about that. You were one of our first people we identified to build this storyline arc and, and let the greats of the position and just the greats of the NFL tell their story. I think everyone's going to be very interested to hear your perspective, not only on your life, on your experiences, but on the position of the tight end, its status today. But before we get into that, I think we would all be very remiss to not recognize what's going on in our country. Obviously, for anybody who follows you, and not just in the last couple of weeks, you have been a very outspoken champion of civil rights and equality. I do think it's important for people who might not look alike, come from the same background, to be able to open into an open dialogue with the intent to understand and with the intent to ask questions and to listen. And I would love your perspective on just the status of our country, things that are going on. Well, Greg, right now, this is a um, the George Floyd probably was what we call the straw that broke the camel's back. You know this has been brewing for a while. You can go back to Trayvon Martin, Walter Scott, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice. There have been so many Eric Garners, Athena Jefferson, Breonna Taylor, uh, uh, Ahmaud Arbery. There's just been so many. And what's getting so frustrating is that there's no one being held accountable. It's like it was open season. And I understand that police work is difficult. No one is saying that. But the police has a job. Their job is not to be judge, jury and executioner. Their job is to arrest the suspect and then have the court system adjudicate that and the uh, judges or what uh, jury to determine the punishment or whatever the, and the, whatever that may be. We saw a man beg for his life, cry out for help and no one wanted to help. And I think it was what got what captured uh, America and the world's attention is that the smug and the cavalierness of the officer that had his knee on the man's neck when he's yelling he can't breathe and his hand in his pocket and he's handcuffed behind his hands, handcuffed behind his back. And, and, you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds. The last three minutes, he was totally unconscious. He had no pulse and he still was unrelenting. And Dr. King once said that riots are the uh, voice of the unheard. What is it that America is refusing to hear? What are they refusing to listen to? And, you know, we, we if you look at the history of America, Greg, blacks have, have been very tolerant of a lot of things. Uh, we've been tolerant of the uh, economics. We've been tolerant of our health care. We've been tolerant of our employment. Um, I think where they draw the line was the unarmed killing of these unarmed black men and women. And th- basically, America says we've had enough. And I think what we're seeing is that the length of the protests, the size of the protest is that I really think this is going to be a changing of the guard. I really think this is a moment in history that we're going to look back and say that was it. That was the moment in which America came together and what America was supposed to represent started to represent that for all, not just one particular group. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. So I am very proud uh, that a lot of people that don't look like Shannon Sharp, that's not the race of Shannon Sharp, that doesn't come from a background like Shannon Sharp, decided to say, you know what? We feel your pain. We feel your empathy. And that's what it's going to take. Yeah. And I think the key word you said there is empathy. And I think to your point, I think if people would approach this discussion and approach and approach this conversation from a place of understanding and from a Mm -hmm. place of empathy, 
I think the conversations would be a lot more fruitful. I really hope so, Greg. I really, and it is a very difficult conversation because you're dealing with over 400 years of history. You're dealing with a situation where blacks have been marginalized for the better part since they've arrived here as slaves in 1619. But I think the biggest thing is, Greg, it's going to take someone like you because they might not want to hear from me because I don't look like them. I don't say it in the way they will like to hear it. The people that created racism is going to have to be the one that solve racism. We can tell you all you want to, but if you're unwilling to listen and to change, and you can't say, yeah, but, that was, slavery was a long time ago. Yeah, Jim Crow South was a long time ago. Once you start going to that, that tells me you're not willing to listen and you don't want to really change what's going on. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it's, it's sometimes things work out for funny reasons. I think the timing of that we could have picked any day to have this conversation. When I mm-hmm. reached out to you a couple weeks ago, right. I don't think either one of us realized the climate we would be talking about. That we thought we were going to talk about one thing, <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. But you've been very open. So I feel like this might be a great time to kind of paint that perspective of where Shannon Sharp came from. I would venture to believe that your experiences growing up have both impacted who you are now as just a man and who you became, obviously, to a lesser degree as a football player, not as important, but who you are as a person. Humble beginnings in your words. I would love you to take the listener back and just kind of lay that foundation for where it all started to be the man you are sitting here today with all the accomplishments you have under your belt. Well, you're, you're exactly right, Greg. I grew up in rural South Georgia, uh, Glenville, Georgia, which is about 60, 65 miles from Savannah. And grew up on a farm on my grandparents' farm. My grandfather was a farmer. Uh, my my grandmother worked at the Glenview Nursing Home, who let, later where she resided until her passing in 2011. I understood the rebel flag. I understood racism. I you know you you hear things. You hear being called the N word. You get, you know they call you Tootsie Roll. They call you a crow. They call you all the derogatory names, and you heard them. You knew what it was. Um, But what I did learn, everybody didn't call me that, but I did learn what I learned to do is that I judge a person by how they treat me. I didn't say, okay, that white person said that to me, so all white people are bad. But I think the thing is, is that when you go back and look at it, and Dr. King said this, and I remember, and I brought it up, Greg, I said, if you look at, and a lot of the synonyms that go along with black, they're derogatory. Black magic, black eye, black ball, black listed, black sheep, the dark. So uh, a lot of the things that come along with black that follows black, it's also like you look at it in a negative light. So you automatically assume somebody that's black, they have to be bad. They have to have done something, which that's not the case. And so I just think if everybody were to just open their hearts and realize that we're all we're, we're, we're one race, we're the human race. Everybody's not out to get you. Everybody's not out to take something from you. But if you just judge a person on his or her merits, I think everybody would be better. But growing up like that, it taught me to deal with a lot of people. I like to consider myself a people person for the simple fact that I'm willing to give anybody a, a chance um, until they show me who they are. And then I, yeah, I don't try to get back at the person. I just move on about my business and not have to deal with that person. But my upbringing had a lot to do with who I am, how I am. I'm unapologetic in my blackness. Uh, I make no apologies. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. And I move on. Um, and uh, I think that helped me because I was very prideful. But I just knew this, Greg, growing up how I grew up in a thousand square foot cinder block home with cement floors and a tin roof. I just knew that wasn't the life that I wanted for the rest of my life. 
I didn't want to live my life like my grandparents were living their life. And that unfortunately that uh, my uncles and aunts, that was all they were going to know. I didn't want to live that. So I, even though I was in Glenville, Georgia, my mind was a thousand miles away on something positive uh, of what I could become. And uh, I did work my tail off working in those fields uh, until I was 20 plus years of age. And it taught me discipline. It taught me hard work. It taught me if I want something, there's nothing that I couldn't achieve. Um, although it would, might, it might not be easy, but my desire to achieve greatness and to be something was greater than my desire not to. Obviously, you've spoken about the impact your grandma and grandpa had on you. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who grew up with, I grew up with two brothers, one brother very close to me in age. We grew up, uh, he was one grade ahead of me. He was the quarterback. Growing up, I was the running back. Then when we got into high school, he was the quarterback, and I became a tight end as a freshman. Coming out of high school, my brother signed with the University of Notre Dame. I was a high school junior. And in my heart, I knew I didn't want to go there, but I still signed with them. I still I wanted to go with my older brother. Right. It, it didn't work out. He, he ended up going to Virginia, and I ended up going down to Miami, which we can touch on later. But my point is, your relationship, I know I can relate to what it's like growing up with brothers and wanting to be like them. I'm sure he still has a great impact on you today. How special was that relationship and just continuing to to chase him and just continue to be that little brother who wants to just be just like big brother? Well, Greg, I wish we were closer in age like you and your brother. I wish he was only one grade ahead of me. Well, so I could have I could have beat him a lot quicker than what it actually happened. He was three years older than I was. Yep. So when I was when I was a freshman, he was a senior. Um, but I wanted to be just like my brother. Every number that he got, I ended up getting. So he was three in high school. I got three. He got to college and were number two. I was number two. He got 84. When I first got to the NFL, someone on the team already had 84. But as soon as I could get it, I got 84. So everything. And my sister used to tell me all the time. She used to get so upset with me. Shannon, be your own person. You don't have to do everything he does. But little did she know, he was the person that I wanted to be. Even though we're brothers, he's more like a father. It's very funny. My sister's eight years older, uh, and she's five years older than my brother. And so I'm the youngest of three. But our relationship, although we're brother and sister, is more like she's my mom, he's my brother. Because that was the role that they took on. My mom obviously was in Chicago, made a very tough, difficult decision that after her and my father divorced, that the best thing was for my, uh, me and my brother and my sister to go live with my grandparents. Uh, and so... They kind of like, my sister was the one that helped me with my homework. My brother and I, we were playing. My sister was the one that gave me a bath and got me ready for school and did it, got me ready for church and things of that nature. But growing up on a farm, you have to be disciplined. You understand structure. Uh, my grandfather used to have a saying, says, boy, I'm not going to chew this food twice. What he meant by that, he's not going to tell you but one time to do something. It wasn't a repeat like, you know, parents tell kids over and over. Oh. My grandfather wasn't that type. He wasn't that type of man. And if he showed you something one time, he expected you to be able to do it. So he was not a very patient man. Uh, and that was something that I've had to learn over the years is patience. Um, but I think growing up on that farm, it taught me a lot. It taught. See, I think sometimes you have jobs, Greg. They don't always teach you. A lot of times they teach you what you don't want to do for the rest of your life. And I think farming taught me that I didn't want to you know, be on a farm and raise hogs and catch chickens and plant crops and do all these other things. I knew that was what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do, how could I quickly accumulate wealth, accumulate money 
that I could take care of my family, that I could take care of my grandmother and give her a life that she could ne- she would have never enjoyed had I not been great at football, had God not blessed me with the ability that I was able to hone my skill through working on a farm, through hard work to get out of that impoverished environment and make a better way for my family. So there's a lot of things. It's almost like when you say a perfect storm, it was a perfect storm. I was my desire, my unquenchable thirst to be great. There's no way that was going to be the only way for me. And so I started at a very young age. Uh, once my grandfather passed because my uncles got hurt playing football. So he had made it abundantly clear to my brother and I, he wasn't going to allow us to play football because he didn't want to run the risk of us getting hurt. Well, if you got hurt playing football, how are you going to be able to work on the farm? Working on the farm was the most important thing, not playing football. And so he had made that abundantly clear. Uh, my grandfather passed in 1977 and I started playing football. That, that was in February of 77. And my grandmother let me start playing football in like uh, August of 77, 78. And the rest is, as they say, is history. Wow. Uh, and that's kind story. of how my career started. What, I mean, oh my God, what a story. I mean, to to be able to share that perspective and and just, I I think it's, it's, it's unbelievable. My dad was a gym teacher. He, phys ed, we called it gym, uh-huh. and uh, was our head football, head varsity football coach for 40 years of his life. When you talk about patience and not wanting to say the same thing twice, I could picture my father very, very clearly um, on those fields. But again, it's all we knew. We grew up in this world. We grew up playing the game. Hearing you talk about your high school football coach and him being able to guide you, you know, through your struggles in high school and get you into college and and put you on a path that has led to today. Talk a little more about William Hall, your relationship with him, his impact on you. Absolutely. Uh, It's funny that my mom graduated high school in 1960. Coach Hall didn't teach her, but he actually drove the school bus for them. But all, all of my uncles, he did coach. Uh, and my uncle started graduating in 67, 66. Uh, uncle graduated in 67, had an uncle graduate in 68. So he coached all of my uncles. He coached all of my aunts, taught all of us uh, before the schools were integrated. And then he came to Glenville High School and he coached my brother and I. So, and he coached for over 50 years. And he didn't live in the city where we actually went to school. He lived in Savannah. So he drove to and from every day, 60 miles, one way, and then 60 miles back home. And so he was our football coach. He was our track and field coach. And so there were some times that we would have a track meet in Savannah. So he would drive to school, uh, uh, teach his classes, drive us to the track meet in Savannah, drive back home from the track meet, take everybody home, drop everybody off, and then drive back to Savannah and be back to school by eight o'clock the next day. And he did that for over 50 years. And for me, uh, maybe it was because of the relationship that he had with all my uncles. He coached all my uncles. Uh, Maybe it was because uh, he was the one that had to break the news that my uncle had broken his collarbone or broken his leg. And my grandfather had already told him, he said, these boys can play football, Hall. That's he called him his last name. He said, Hall, these boys can play football. But if something happens to them, you going to get out there and help me in those fields. You going to help me with these hogs. And so <laughs> I, I wish I could have been there to hear the conversation when he brought my uncle's home and one had broken his collarbone and the other one at a later date time had broken his leg. I would have loved to have heard that conversation. That could not have gone uh, particularly well. But Coach Hall has always been there. And so 
I, I remember I was a Prop 48, and all these schools, the University of Georgia and Texas and Nebraska was recruiting me for football, basketball, and track. And so I was Prop 48, and I remember him saying, you know, Savannah State is a good school. Well, even though Savannah was only 16, I had never heard of Savannah State. I'm like, huh? He's like, yeah, Savannah State's a good school. I went there, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, I don't know, Coach Hall. Uh, I'm like, mm, no, nah, I think I'm just going to go into the military. And so my brother called me and said, well, you know, what are you going to do about school? Well, uh, Savannah State had offered me a scholarship, uh, but I told him, I said, I think I'm going to go to the military. He came home. He's at the University of South Carolina. He came home and he talked to me. He said, this, he, not, he, said he didn't say, well, I think what, this is what I think you should do. He said, this is what you're going to do. He said, you're going to go to Savannah State and you're going to go for a year. And if you don't like it, you can go to the military and say, hey, I went to school. School wasn't for me. So forth and so on. And, man, I went to Savannah State and it was the best decision of my life. Uh, Coach Hall would come to just about every game uh, my four years at Savannah State. And then when I got to the NFL, it didn't matter. He would drive to D.C. He would drive to Jacksonville. He would drive to Tennessee. If it was within a 15-hour drive, he would drive to see me play. And then my Spanish teacher, who was Miss Keels and her husband, who was my middle school principal, they would tag along with him. They didn't really like to fly. So it was something to finally get them on a plane when I got into the Ring of Fame and I went to the Hall of Fame to get them on a plane to actually come and they didn't have to drive. But it was, it, it, Coach Hall has been, he's he, he still, I'm glad he finally decided to hang it up. Uh, and I, I just told him, and uh, I, bought him, I, I bought him a car. And I said, the only reason I'm gonna buy you this car, I said, if I buy you a car, you just gotta stop working. And uh, I purchased him a car. I told him to just go, go down into the, he wanted the Ford. I said, go down to the Ford dealership, pick whatever color, get whatever you want. I got it. And he worked for another year. <laughs> He didn't. He, awesome. didn't quit, he didn't quit immediately. He he uh, coached uh, fifty years. Wow, fifty. Yeah, my dad. My dad got about forty in, um, and he retired after my my youngest brother, who's ten years younger than me. After he uh -huh. came through, he was done. But I, I remember. I remember the day. This is actually a, an interesting story and somewhat relevant to the time. Um, are you familiar with the movie Lean on Me with Morgan Freeman? I, Joe, I So Joe Clark. Joe Clark trying to change Patterson, New Jersey, kind of a troubled city, mm -hmm. uh, the schools, the whole thing. So my dad got one of his first head coaching jobs by Joe Clark at Eastside High School. Wow. And my dad, I'll never forget when we got old enough and he let us watch the movie, but growing up, he would tell us stories about how much he respected Joe Clark and what a great job he did and how much he thinks if things didn't play out the way they did, he if they didn't ask him to leave or move on, he said he never would have left. He said, that was my purpose. I, those kids, I resonated with them. I was hard on them. But I'll tell you what, man, we were making progress. Joe Clark is so he spoke. So then all of a sudden now I'm watching a movie and here's my dad telling me that I'm the football coach for Eastside High School when Joe Clark is locking the doors and chaining the doors <laughs> and fighting. So he got his start. Um, he got his start. Then he ended up after he got fired from Eastside, ended up at the high school um, in 1986, the year the year after I was born. And coached there until 2013. So I know firsthand the impact. He happened to be my dad, but it sounded a lot like he had that very similar role to you. Not mm -hmm. your father, but had that father-type relationship. And yep. uh, it just hearing you talk about it reminds me a lot of the impact he had on me. And it's, and it's pretty cool. Um, it's pretty cool to hear other people kind of share that fond memories of their high school experience and 
just kind of reflect a little bit on on how impactful those people were. And mm-hmm. for me to have my dad, it's uh, it brings back a lot of good memories. We're going to take a quick break, so make sure you stay tuned for more from TE1. So you go to Savannah State. Now you have an unbelievably accomplished career, three-sport athlete, track and field, which a lot of people say might have been your best thing. Is that true? It was. I actually, football was my worst sport growing up. Uh, I only played football because my brother played and I wanted to be like him. I was right. much better in basketball. I was much better in track and field than I was in football. But because he played, I wanted to play. So that was my thing. But once I got to Savannah State, I knew football was going to be my meal ticket. It wasn't going to be basketball. It wasn't going to be track and field. So I just focused on school. I remember Coach Davis telling me, son, if you're good, they'll find you. Because I, I actually... In 1987, after my sophomore year, I was going to transfer to the University of Miami. Come on. Come on. Tra- <laughs> what are you doing? I was, going to, transfer, you- I was going to transfer to the University of Miami. You, you would have loved it. <laughs> and, and I remember Coach Davis, Coach Davis told me, he said, son, we're not in the business of getting players ready for other colleges. He said, if you're as good as you think you are, I promise you they'll find you here at Savannah State. I said, well, I believe I'm as good as I think I am. And I said, okay. And I stayed at Savannah State, got drafted in the seventh round, and the rest is, as you see, Greg, is history. But Coach Davis and Coach Hall were very impactful in my career because I, I just remember them talking to me as if they were, if I was their son. Yep. And, 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 and so practices was hard at Savannah State. Three hours, and you know, Savannah, Georgia gets real hot twice a day. And I just remember Coach Davis saying the first practice, uh, we had probably 100 guys, but he only had 56 uniforms. And I remember him calling us up and saying, guys, I got to trim the fat. And I'm like saying to myself, trim the fat? What the hell does that mean? I'm thinking that to myself. So we started running. And that was before practice. And we probably ran for about 20 minutes in a 100-degree temperature. And i never forget that night. Man, I heard so many foot lockers and trunks and, suit and cars cranking up, leaving out that parking lot. We came the next day, we had about 70 guys. And by the end of the week, we had just enough guys to fill out those uniforms. Conditioning to fill the uniforms is definitely, uh, <laughs> is definitely a new one in my, in my experience. So now at this time, you're playing receiver, running back, H-back. Have you made the transition yet to tight end? Like, what is your, At what point did you say to yourself, all right, I'm a tight end? Or was that not until you got to Denver? Yeah, well, at first, when I first got to Savannah State, um, I, I, I was a running back my first three years in high school because my brother was a running back right. and quarterback. So I was a running back and quarterback. And then my senior year, man, Greg, let me tell you why I moved to tight end. I got tired of getting tackled in the backfield and offensive linemen coming to me saying, my bad. Oh, my bad, Sharp. I missed that one. My bad. I get you next time. So I got tired of getting tackled in the backfield and having somebody say, my bad. I said, you know what? I'm going to move to the line. I'm going to move to a tight end. So I ain't got to worry about saying somebody, my bad. Because when I catch the ball, I'm going to be down the field. It's on me to make the guy miss. And so I moved to tight end my senior year in high school. When I got to college, I, I, and I told him, I said, I want to play wide receiver. Well, I moved to wide receiver my first year. Well, the tight end that we had flunked out of school, and Coach Davis told me that he was going to move me to tight end. I was like, okay. And a funny story, Greg. So 
the next, so I'm a rise, I'm gonna be a rising sophomore. So they're bringing in recruits in. One of the guys that I'm gonna show around is Ben Coates. Stop! Wow, <laughs> Ben That's Coates. So, so Ben's a tight end. Yeah. And I look, I look at him and tell him, I say, uh, "You a tight end, huh?" He's like, "Yeah." I said, "You want to start?" He's like, "Yeah, that would be nice." I said, well, "Don't come to Savannah State." I said, "Cause they move me to tight end, and you can't beat me out." He ended up going to Livingston. <laughs> we, we, we talk all the time, but they moved me to tight end my sophomore year. I become an All American. Uh, I win uh, Offensive Player of the Year. I win uh, in the conference. I'm obviously so I'm black. I'm All American, and then my junior and senior year, they moved me back to wide receiver. And so I would, they, the Broncos draft me as a wide receiver. I'm playing wide receiver. And funny thing, every tight end that we have get hurt. Clarence K got hurt. Orson Mobley got hurt. Chris Verhoes, before they had free agency, they had what they called plan B. And plan B was you got a team, each team got an opportunity to protect, say, 30, 40 guys. 30, say, I think it was about 30, 35 guys. The rest of the, and the guys that didn't get protected, other teams could pick up you know, so if you wanted yeah. to sign, you know, if I, they left me unprotected, somebody could have gotten me off Denver's roster. Well, that's what they did with Chris Burhose. And normally that was, you got big money. And he ended up getting hurt. And I remember uh, my uh, uh, athletic trainer, Steve Antonopoulos, called him Greek. He said, Dan wants to see you after the meeting. I was like, I'm like oh, my goodness. Because I remember there were guys that got to go see Dan after the meeting and they got cut. Yep. So I'm like, oh, man. Man, they about to cut me. I was like, damn. <laughs> and so I remember going to his office and I'm sitting down and I'm like, I'm nervous. I'm like, yes, sir. He said, uh, what do you think about switching positions? And it was like, I, and I was most, like, most uh, relieved you've ever been. Exactly. I'm like, okay. I said, uh, am I going to get to play? He's like, yeah, you, you can get an opportunity to play. But you're gonna have to learn the plays. Well, hell, Greg, I'm struggling to learn the, the wide receiver plays, and now they move me to a, a, another position that I got to try to learn those plays. And I remember when they put when they put me in the game, they put me in motion the entire game. They put me in motion so John could tell me what I had to do as I ran past him. <laughs> so, so you could imagine what that's like in Denver. You played in Denver. You yeah. know how how difficult that is. So imagine playing 60, 70 plays and you're in constant motion the entire game. And I'm also playing special teams. And I remember coming to the sidelines and I'm, I'm like, and Dan is looking at me like, why are you breathing so hard? I'm why like, do you Dan. think? Why do you think? <laughs> I'm playing punt, punt return, kick, kick return, and you got me in motion the entire game. That's why I'm so... So that's kind of how it started. It started because all the other tight ends had gotten hurt and I was the biggest receiver. So I ended up playing my first year, uh, like the last eight games, I played tight end at about 208, 210 pounds. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, well, it, it all worked out, obviously. But I mean, you talk about like the ultimate sports hack. All right, Shannon doesn't know the position. What are we going to do? We're just going to motion him by our Hall of Fame quarterback and he's going to yeah. just tell him what to do. All right, yeah. coach, that's a good plan. But hey, that, you got to do what you got to do. Well, I remember Dan telling me, Dan said, you're too big, you're too fast, you're too strong not to carve out a niche for you, yourself, and to have a nice career in the league. He said, it's my job to get you on the field. It's your job to stay. And it was something about him telling me that because I sincerely believe that he really wanted me to do well. 
He wanted me to make it. And then John, uh, John Elway, who was the quarterback at the time, for some reason, he took a liking to me. Maybe because, you know, my sense of humor, my wit, I don't know what it was. But he was like, he would, you know, and my brother used to always tell me, he says, now, John Elway is going to come to you in practice. Just make sure you're ready. And so we built up a relationship. We built up a chemistry in practice. Uh, and so, and that was it. And we built up a relationship in the game. And so it was like a perfect storm. Dan getting me on the field, John believing in me, giving me opportunities to make plays in practice, that trust building, getting into the games. And the next thing you know, I'm his go-to guy. I'm the guy that on third and five or third and eight, he's going to be looking for me. Down in the red zone, he's going to be looking to me, looking uh, uh, for me. And so that just gave me confidence that I'm playing in the NFL. I'm playing with a guy that's won the MVP, that's going to the Super Bowl, and he has the most trust in me, although I'm the youngest of all his receivers. Isn't it, there's, it's hard to really quantify. Over the years, I've had a lot of people ask me about my relationship with Cam and what's made it what's made us work so well and what's been and and the only thing i could really come up with is like we just both really trusted each other there, mm-hmm. and i don't i couldn't put my finger on it i don't know what was so unique about our two styles or our personalities but it just worked and right. early on it was his rookie year and my fifth year when i got traded to carolina in 2011 and as that season went on and then it, starting in 2012 we just saw things the same way we would talk the same way, we, and it and it's just hard. So to hear you talk about your relationship with Elway, it just sounds there's nothing more unique and special than when you know the guy pulling the trigger when things are on the line. He knows you're going to be his guy, and yep. and and for as as much pride as you take in that, I know at least for me, not to speak for you, I felt a lot of I felt like a lot of pressure to uphold that responsibility yeah. and I felt if there was a third down and Cam didn't come and he came to me and I didn't win and we ran off the field like I felt like I let he put all his faith and trust in me mm-hmm. and I felt this like unwavering feeling of that I let him down and as a result Correct. I left the team down Building people think, oh, to be the number one guy, that must have been amazing. You wrote it to two Super Bowls, Elway, this. People don't understand. There's a lot that goes with that responsibility mm-hmm. of being that guy. Yeah. You have to be willing to you have to be willing to uh because there are gonna be times that you need to make plays. He's counting on you to make plays and you gotta win. Even if you're double team, that was not an excuse. I felt that anytime he threw the ball in my direction. He was expecting me to win, and I needed to win. Yep. But he trusted me to be, even if I was tightly covered, more than someone else that might have been wide open. And so now that gave me the confidence that I got to just make sure I win more times than not because I don't want to let him down. And so uh, that was the type of relationship that Seven and I had, and it worked out great. And uh, and we, we so when I go back to Denver, which is not often, we talk about – you know, we're standing out there on the field and I'm talking to him. He's like, you know, I, re- you know, I remember when it's been, you know, I retired in 2004. So it's been 2004. It's been such a long time. And he retired in 99. But, you know, you still feel what it was, you know, thinking of seeing the guys warm up and remember that we used to do that. Getting ready yeah, we, to do we're that pretty, hey, we're pretty good now. Right. Like, <laughs> and, you know, to have to be able to reflect on that is pretty cool. And. Um, you know, hearing you talk about him, I, I I understand that feeling. I anytime a ball was incomplete, 
the first thing, practice or a game, I'd come to the sideline or come to behind the behind the practice when the defense was up. And my first words to Cam would be, what, what were you thinking? What, like, what I immediately assumed I wasn't in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes be like, I was thinking a little flatter, thinking a little higher. Or most times he said, that's on me. Bad ball. All right. Right. I just felt like there was such a responsibility to see the game through the quarterback's eyes. The first time I met, the first time I met with Russell now transitioning to Seattle, one of our first conversations, he started asking me, you know, what kind of things do I like? And we were talking and I said, here's something, Russell, that I want you to learn really fast about me. I have ways that I've done things and whatnot, but if you don't see what I, if I don't see what you see, Mm-hmm. neither one of us looks good. Right. It doesn't do us any good to try to do it the other way around. Right. And and I just think that comes the responsibility of when you know you're the guy and people are really relying mm-hmm. on you, you owe it to everybody else to maximize those opportunities. Because like you said, he could throw the ball wherever he wants. He's throwing it to you for a reason. And there, it's awesome because you get to go to the Hall of Fame, but it's, <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be sometimes if you're not mentally prepared to handle the good and the bad. He has a lot of pressure. There's a lot yeah. of pressure. There's a lot of expectation. And you've been on the field, Greg, when they, when when your teammates, the defense, and the guy standing on the sideline, throw it to Greg, throw it to Greg. They can't stop it. Yep. And there's and nothing there's better. No, there's no greater feeling to have your teammates saying, throw it to all the other guys. There are other guys on the field also. But to have them say, throw it to him because they can't stop him. Yeah, get it. Yeah, we're going to throw it again all day long. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no greater feeling than that. And yep. so to have that kind of trust and to have the quarterback to have that kind of trust in you is an unbelievable feeling. Yeah, so, you, yeah, there, there's nothing better knowing that they can't stop you. Well, so you go on now. You're, you talk about your relationship with Elway and those, those great Denver teams you guys had in the 90s. So you win two Super Bowls. You could make an argument that that 96 team could be one of the most balanced and prolific offenses. I know maybe you didn't throw for 5,000 yards, but mm-hmm. Terrell Davis at running back, you were their leading receiver, great defense, and then, of course, Elway, a quarterback. You guys went on to win the Super Bowl, of course, but it reminds me a lot of the year 2015 that we went to the Super Bowl and we ended up losing, for, you know, coincidentally, to Denver. Um, <laughs> I was our leading receiver at the tight end position. Almost unheard of. Re- a hard running running team. Cam Newton didn't throw for 5,000 yards, but because he was such a threat passing and running, he's the MVP. Great defense. Now, we fell short. That You guys really laid that, that recipe out for what that formula looked like to have success. Talk a little bit about those teams. I mean, specifically those two Super Bowl teams, I mean, you, you guys were were really ahead of your time as far as being a balanced attack that was really hard for people to kind of wrap their head around. Well, I think the biggest thing was that normally when you have a Hall of Fame quarterback that can throw for the amount of yards that John could throw for, you automatically say, okay, this is his team and this is how we're going to win. But I think Mike realized early on, in order for us to have success, we need to be a running team. Okay, we can run the football, but the luxury that we had is that we have a Hall of Fame quarterback. You have myself, who was the leading receiver for a bunch, a bunch of uh, most of those years. You had Ed Rod outside. So we had a, a, a tight end that could go get you 1,000 yards. And we had two 1,000-yard receivers. And we had a running back that was capable of going for two, two grand. 
So it was very, very difficult. If you stack the box, we had guys that can win one-on-one. If you play coverage, we were going to run the ball down your throat. So it, it was very difficult. Uh, 96, we go 13-3, and we lose in the divisional. The next year, we go 12-4, and win the Super Bowl. The next year, we go 14-2. and So it was very, very difficult. And TD, each year, got better and better. He rushes for 1,100 yards. Then he rushes for 1,500 yards. Then he rushes for 1,700 yards. Then he rushes for 2,000 yards. And so he just got better and better and better. John was still, and, and Ed and Rod, Rod was just not coming into his own. Ed, uh, uh, you know, Ed was all of a sudden was like, Ed, man, the white guy can run because he was cooking folks deep. It's like under his, we're saying the same thing about his kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were looking at him like, man, that dude can't run. And next thing you know, he beat them deep for 40, 50-yard touchdowns. Breaking, so, he's breaking stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And so that was that was kind of how we were doing it. Uh, uh, and I think sometimes you you it's like when you have a great, great quarterback, sometimes you fall into, especially now with the money as great as it is, it's hard to pay a guy $35 million and then turn around and ask him to hand the ball off 300 times. If you're paying that kind of money, you kind of want to see, you know, where that money is going and you ask the guy to throw it. But that's not what Mike did, although the money wasn't the same. We had a Hall of Fame quarterback and we ran the ball. We were a predominantly run team because Mike figured out early on that that was the way we were going to have success was by running the football and then play action and throw the ball off of that. Your first stint in Denver obviously speaks for itself because not only do you go to Baltimore and end up breaking your now boss, Ozzie Newsom's receiving record, which, which we're, we're going to get to. I'm going to put you on the spot. We're going to take a quick break, so make sure you stay tuned for more from TE1. Another quick reminder that this year, NFLSundayTicket.tv lets you stream all the live, out-of-market NFL games every Sunday, so you never miss a snap from tight ends like me, Travis Kelsey, or George Kittle. Gone are the days of needing a satellite on your roof to enjoy every snap on Sundays. This year, you can enjoy every game on all your favorite devices. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use the promo code GREG88. At checkout, you will get 15% off your subscription. That's NFLSundayTicket.tv and the promo code GREG88. You go to Baltimore, sign a record contract, mm-hmm. go into a new staff. You talked earlier about your relationship with Brian Billick. You didn't win another Super Bowl. But again, you, now this time you find yourself on a defensive team, right? Mm-hmm. This is arguably the greatest defensive team in history. Offensively, it's really you. It's you. Jamal. And it's you. And Jamal, <laughs> right, yeah. You, again, you find yourself with a real run, a great running back, yourself, and then, and obviously, the defense is an all-time legendary defense that takes you mm-hmm. to the Super Bowl. What was that transition like? I know when I when I left Chicago, I, I did not spend as much time as you did in Denver. When I transitioned to Carolina in '11, you know, there's some there's some learning curve there in the beginning. No, no matter what you accomplish, it's I anticipate mm-hmm. having that this year when I go to Seattle. You know, 13 years in the league, but year 14 is going to be very different. As an established player, what was that like for you? Here you are as a two-time Super Bowl champ one of the most prolific players in NFL history. And you got to, in essence, start all over again. Well, it was tough because, yeah, I won two Super Bowls, but I didn't win it for Baltimore. 
Yeah, I had gone to seven Pro Bowls, but I didn't go to any of them for Baltimore for four first-team All-Pros. And so now I've got to show people, i got to show my teammates how I became that, why I have these credentials. And so they saw the way that I was in the weight room. They saw the way I ate. They saw the way I practiced. And it's like, oh, so that's what it takes. Um, people think it's easy to play offense when you got a dominant defense. But it's really hard because you're not going to get a whole lot of opportunities. It's not like they're going to put the ball up 30, 40 times a game. You might get one, two plays to actually make a play. And you've got to make that play count. I think what happened was once we got to the playoffs, I think they thought, okay, this is why we got it. Because it seemed like every game I made a play. And that, that's, that's what it would really take it offensively is that each game for the wild card game, the divisional round, and to the championship game, I made a play that seemingly was the play that got us started and really just broke the other team's will. And so that was the that was the biggest thing for me is that when you go somewhere else, what you accomplished where you left from, that stays there. They don't want to care about they don't really care about what you did in Chicago or, or, or Carolina. That sounds like the little voice inside my head. When I when I signed with them, I to, I, I told myself, I said, this season has to be my best year. Like I just feel like I have so much to prove, right? Carolina, mm -hmm. to your point earlier, really kind of hit home. They thought they could get better without me. Mm -hmm. And and I understand the, the politics of it. I'd be lying if if I didn't tell you that I'm trying to go to Seattle in the best shape of my life and show up to the first workout and beat everybody, be the last guy running routes. I told coach, I said, you don't have to baby me in training camp. Like I need to come in and show these guys and earn the respect. These guys have watched me from afar for a long time. We've played them, competed against Bobby and KJ and these guys. But now this is going to be their first kind of reaction to me. And they're, they're, I got to make sure I get off to that great start where they say, "Are right, we didn't just bring in some old guy who's going to be good in the locker right. room. This right. guy can play. Mm -hmm. And and hearing you talk about it, the, the parallels to some of us at these stages of our career are eerily similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that was the biggest thing. I just wanted to make sure uh, they saw me working out. And they, I, I'm sure they had heard about how I like to work out. But I remember the first time I'm in the locker room, I mean, in the, uh, in the, uh, the weight room, and we're, you know, so I don't really know anybody. And at that time, Ray wasn't there. And so I don't really know anybody. So I'm working out by myself. And so I'm working out. And so I go over there and I load the, I load the, uh, the bar. I put four or five on the bench. And here I am, 240 pounds. And I do it six times. I take it off by myself. I do it six times and put it back. And guys are just sitting there just looking at me. They're like, did he just take four or five off by himself, do it six times and put it back? And then I got the 150-pound the dumbbells. I'm doing them 12 times. And they're like, okay, now we see why he, why we signed him. Now we see how he became what he became. And so that was the thing. And that's what it is. And like you said, uh, nobody from uh, – Harry Swain played with me. He was on the 98 team. So he was there. I knew Rod. I knew Rod Wilson because we had gone to some Pro Bowls together. Uh, and so he was really the only guy that I knew there. Uh, we uh, Ray was going through what he was going through in Atlanta. And so he and I was becoming friends because he ended up staying with me. Uh, he and I started working out together because I told him once he got back, this wasn't going to be an excuse for why you're not in shape, why you're not prepared to go play football to go to training camp. 
So we got to make sure you're ready to go play football and you're ready to be in your football shape. And so that was my thing to try to help him get ready. And so, yeah, you got to put your best foot forward. You have to show that this is the Greg Olson, Greg Olson of old, not an old Greg Olson. I love that. I love that. <laughs> that hey, my, my first game, I have – hey, listen, you mark my words. You can, everyone can mark this down. If I My first good game out there, my post-game interview, and they say, hey, what's it been like? I'm saying Shannon Sharp gave me this saying, and I'm giving you all the credit. Co- copyright it. I'm giving you. This is the old Greg Olson, not an old Greg Olson. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, your your career obviously was not by any means over. You were still accomplishing, of course, the team success that culminated in the Super Bowl there. But I, I just love the dynamic and hearing about the relationship between you and Ozzy. Um, you know, breaking his records, but he's <laughs> he's kind of your boss to a degree. Uh-huh. Wait, what what was that like? So you come in the locker room. You just in two thousand one. You break his record. You know, do you do you have like a smart ass comment? Do you have a like? What do you do when you break a guy's record? Like what? And you see him and you work with him. Man, it's funny because Ozzy and I. It's kind of like we have like a a big brother, a little brother relationship. Uh-huh. And so you know, we we he and I was always joking. He said, and I told him, I said, the best part about coming to Baltimore is that you get an opportunity to see up close and personal as I break your record. I said, oh, man, that's, that's going to be such a great free. And i never forget, so he comes out on the field after I break the record, you know, they, they, they hand me the ball and everything, and he, he hugs me. He said, you broke the record, but I'm still the best tight end. <laughs> <laughs> Every time we talk, he, he always asks me, how is the second best tight end in NFL history? I That's said, so- I don't know. How, I tell him, I said, I don't know how Kevin Winslow, uh, uh, <laughs> Big Kellen is. I say, but I'm the best tight end in NFL history is doing just fine. Well, to, that that leads me. I I don't know if you remember this, but one of the most scary moments of my life. I'm sitting on on the set with you at Super Bowl, and we're doing the show Super Bowl week, and we're having a good time talking about the game or whatever. And you ask me, and here I am sitting right next to you, and and the question is. Who's the best tight end of all time? And I'm like, shit. I said, Shannon's the man, and he's sitting right next to me. And I was like, but Tony's numbers. And I'm like, you know, Tony Gonzalez is a really good player. You know, it's hard. And I'm like, oh, my God. I don't know if Shannon's ever going to talk to me again. I was like, how did I not say Shannon Sharp when I was sitting right next to him? So I'm glad we were able to work through that. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and realize that we're still good. But, um, well, in the midst of accomplishing, you know, all of this, I, I think we need to just go back real quick and just touch on, you know, you talk about your relationship with your brother, Sterling. Mm-hmm. All of us who grew up watching football understood the seven-year start that he had to his career. He's on pace to do things that no other player at his position could ever accomplish. He unfortunately has a congenital neck defect, um, Mm -hmm. is told that his career has to end after seven years. Did you feel a responsibility to kind of play for the both of you? I know you gave him one of your Super Bowl rings. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to know, how did that alter or shape that point in your career? It was because, uh, you know, we were just, and I was just starting to become the player that I thought I could, you know, the last three years of his career. Um, we both all made the Pro Bowl. I was first team All Pro one of those years. He was first team All Pro. He was a starter in the pro, uh, Super Bowl. I mean, uh, the Pro Bowl. I was a starter. So everything was just going so great. And I just remember getting the call. But I remember watching the game. I remember watching the Atlanta game in which he took a hit and he didn't get right back up. 
Uh, and I was like, you know, maybe he, you know, maybe he got dazed. But he told me uh, when I talked to him that night is that he was trying to roll over and he couldn't get up. Uh, um, but so he just, you know, thought he just had a stinger or something. And so he didn't play any more of that game. And then he goes to Tampa, which was the following week, which was actually the last game of his career. And he played an unbelievable game. And it just so happened that Thomas Everett, he catches the ball, and Thomas Everett's forearms hits him across the hits him across his face mask. And that was his last game, the last game he ever played. He had 94 catches, 18 touchdowns that season, and never played another game. And I remember him telling me that he was going to go see the doctor. And then I talked to him probably like two days later after he goes to the doctor and comes back. He said, it's over, bro. I said, what you mean? The doctor said, uh, he advised me not to play football anymore. And man, I just, it just, I just broke down. Um, because everything that I wanted to be, and we were just, you know, we were just starting to be, you know, just everything was just going so well. He was playing at, a, at an elite level that he thought he could play at. I was just starting to come into my own, play at an elite level that I thought I could play at. And now it's over. And so now I got to play. I have to play for the both of us. It's just not about me anymore. It's about him. I have to carry on what he started uh, because that was the, that was the thing for me is that having an older brother that's really good, you automatically get compared to him. Yep. Can you do this like your brother? Can you do that like your brother? You're not as good as your brother. But that never, you know, I, I didn't. I never uh, felt my brother overshadow me. I embraced the opportunity to show people that I was just as good, if not better. And so for me, now is an opportunity for me to show that, yeah, I'm legit. Uh, uh, you know, my brother had his had his own thing going in Green Bay. I'm doing my thing in Baltimore. But what he was accomplishing in Green Bay wasn't going on my resume in Denver. I had to do this. And so it was it was it was he was always there. He was always in my corner. And it was great to have him there, to have a big brother. There's no question in my mind. I don't become the player. I don't become the man that I am without him in my life. And so a lot of the a lot of the success that I ended up having was directly attributed to him. I mean, hearing hearing you talk about it like gives me chills. I can only imagine, you know, how tough that must have been for for both of you. So I I, I appreciate you kind of reflecting on that because I think it's it's super important. Again, just to reemphasize how special that relationship there was between you and your brother. So last last couple of things, and I'm going to let you go. Obviously, you end up now going back to Denver. You're back to Mike Shanahan. Um, and, and you're quoted as saying, I, I, I thought this was funny. You said, Mike Shanahan didn't bring me back here to do me any favors. He brought right. me back here. The only way he brought me back here is if he knew I could help this team win. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just love that. You know, and it's because it's when teams started calling me in free agency, and like, you know, what do you think? And I said, listen, only bring me there if you want me the player. I'll give you all the extra stuff and that leadership and the veteran. That's fine. But, like, I'm coming to play ball first and foremost. Mike is not big into sentimentality. Yeah. Mike brought me back here to help him win football games. This is not a favor. And so now it's my job to go out there and show that I'm still the same Shannon. I still can make those plays when given the opportunity. And it's funny that in year 13, um, I break the single game record for the most receiving yards in the game by a tight end in year 13. Not in year eight, not in year five, in year 13. So, and that was just, you know, an opportunity just presented itself. And I know how Mike is. Once a guy gets hot, Mike's going to feed him the ball. 
And I got hot against Kansas City, and he just, Greasy just kept feeding me the ball. And next thing you know, I didn't even know I had broken the record until uh, Jim Sakamoto comes up to me after the game and says, you just broke a record. I'm like, what record? He's like, you just had most receiving yards in the game uh, by a tight end. I was like, well, how many yards was it? He's like, it's two four, you got 214. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, wow. two. I, I had no idea. I didn't even know what the re- I didn't even know what the record uh, was. I didn't even know who owned the record. Um, and but I've seen a lot of guys get close. George Kittle had me scared one year. George Kittle had like 210, 212 in the first half. I'm like, oh, I remember my record. <laughs> uh, so it's funny. It's funny you say that. So the only reason I knew you had the record was a couple years ago. I had one of those games where it felt like every ball they threw to me and every ball I caught. So I had 180 something. And after the game, I'm like, God, like, I can't imagine that many guys had more, right? So, of course, you Google it. I'm like, Shannon Sharp had 214 yards? <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Oh, my God. So, I, that's why I knew because selfishly trying to compare, like, that was a pretty good day. Yeah. I was like, damn, Shannon Sharp beat me by 40 yards. <laughs> Before we go and, and kind of put a bow on this conversation, which, again, has just been amazing, at least on my end to hear your reflection and your and your perspective. Who did you view within the tight end community? I think the outside world says, you know, these are the two guys jockeying. Who were those guys that in your mind were the standard or were coming for you as the standard that you had to continue to kind of outpace? Well, it was me and Ben Coates uh, because Ben and I had a relationship. He was in New England. We were both in the AFC the guys in the NFC, Brett Jones, yep. Jay Novacek, yep. yeah, I mean, they, they, they were going to the Pro Bowl, but they were catching 45, yeah. 50 balls. Yeah, they, in the AFC, if you weren't getting 80, 85 balls, you you, you weren't going to be the, uh, the first to start yeah. in the Pro Bowl. No, and yeah. so it was basically, it was Ben and I competing, and then Tony came along. Um, and then, but when Tony came along, I, I think Tony came in 97, yep. and then I got hurt in 99. So, I, I, I was leading the league in catches when I got hurt in 99. I had like 23 catches in, in, four, in three, four games. And then I ended up breaking my collarbone. And so it was, so for me, once uh, once I came into my own Ben, so I, I had to get home or my brother would call me and say, hey, I would ask him, I said, well, what, what did Coach do? He like, he had nine for a buck 60 when I was like, damn. Damn. I know. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get it. I trust me, I get it. So it's just really cool now to hear, you know, you're kind of the old head, kind of uh-huh. established guy. And who the hell is this young Tony Gonzalez? And obviously he goes on to break every record and play for a oh, hundred yeah. years. But mm-hmm. um, it's just really cool to see that that baton passing from one generation to the next to the next. And it's really an interesting story and a really cool story. And and having said that, you're a fo- you follow the game. You're still heavily involved. Obviously, you've had broadcast. You know, you've done broadcasting, some studio stuff. Obviously, you have a show every single day. You know the league mm-hmm. inside and out. How do you feel? What do you see from the position, both in its evolution, its current state, the hands that it's been left? To? I mean, we got arguably one of the greatest generations of tight ends oh, yeah. still playing. Mm-hmm. Is that how you see the position? Do you take great pride knowing that you helped lay that foundation to what these guys are all kind of playing on top of today? I do. Um, I think the biggest thing is now the guys of the past, Ozzy and I, we talk about this, uh, Big Kelly, we talk about this all the time. It's not that the guys are more talented. It's just it's more of them to do it. 
Yeah. Basically, when in the eighties, it was basically killing the Nazi. And basically, when I came, when I got into the league in the nineties, it was me and Coach. And now you got Kittles, and now you got Kelsey, and now you got Gronk. Now you got like five, six guys that can legitimately go get you eighty catches, ninety catches in a season. Yeah. Whereas before it was myself and coach yeah. or it might have been Ozzy and and, and and Big Kellen that could go get you that number. Now you got five, six guys that can legitimately go get you 80 catches, go get you a grand, double digit touchdowns in a season. There are more of those guys that could do what only a handful of guys could do basically in the 80s and the 90s. And so now it's just so many guys. And I love watching it because each guy is different. Yep. You know, you got Gronk, the 6'6", 265, 270, big catch radius, so hard, so uh, so hard to get down. You put him in the slot, you can put him out wide, he can dominate, he can, you know, uh, uh, block it, uh, line of scrimmage. And then you got Kelsey, who's so smooth, the beast so big and, and is fluid, got wiggle. You got George Kittle. You got him that's, that can, at the line of the script, at the point of attack, can dominate the point of attack, put him out wide, he can run routes. He's great after the catch. These guys are just, and then you got these young guns coming on. O.J. Howard has, haven't even scratched the surface of what he can be, uh, and, and so I know you don't want. I know you don't want to get off that mantle just yet. You say, "Well, okay, I, I still, I still got 70, 80 catches in this in these legs." And I, and I'm not gonna lie to you, Shannon. I'm. We've started this conversation with honesty <laughs> and transparency. The next guy on my list that I'm chasing is you. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure if I could if I'm not sure if I could play long enough, but I'm trying like hell. I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> what, what, how, how many yards are you behind me? Uh, I probably got like another 800. Oh, you get that? Uh, how many catches? That I don't know. I'm, I think I'm behind you. Probably a couple, se- uh, maybe a season and a half or so of that. I want to say it's. I'd have to go back. I can have our researchers look it up. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, man. Yeah. You guys. You guys have set that bar high. And and in closing, let me tell you again, I know I started off the show, Shannon. I, I can't tell you what it means to have you involved in this. Um, Hall of Fame person, Hall of Fame player, Hall, Hall of Fame post-career. I mean, you are everything that I think all players would sign up for, career, personally, and obviously post-career, professionally. And to have you tell the story of not only this position, but to tell your story Especially given the current circumstances, I think your voice is so relevant and so and so needed. Um, I know for me, this was a huge honor and a huge treat to have a minute to reflect and share stories and share some laughs um, with you. Uh, I just want you to know how much I appreciate your time. Uh, you could be doing a lot of things right now, so I uh, I hope everyone listening enjoys it as much as I enjoyed having this conversation. And you being a part of this series is going to be a big reason for its success. So. I really appreciate the time, and uh, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, Greg. Great. Good luck this season, too, bro. Thanks, buddy. I hope to see you soon. All righty. Take care, man. Thanks. Have a good day. Sometimes in life, timing just works out perfectly. To have the opportunity to hear firsthand what it was like growing up, working on a farm for his grandparents in the South, what it was like facing adversity and racial injustice, I don't think there was a better person that we could have brought into this conversation, not only to have the conversation of what the NFL evolution and the change, of course he played a huge role in that, but I think his role of bridging that gap between his early childhood time in the the US and our time today, 
I'm not sure there was a better voice that we could have found to fill that void. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends. Next episode, I'll be talking to Tony Gonzalez, so be sure to listen in. TE1 is a Blue Wire podcast.